perfection. Till the space lady sings. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm not gonna steal that. You could take that one for your Moses. Right. For, your, for your Moses? <laughs> I know you've been lacking certain something for your weekly Moses. Wouldn't want to leave you bereft. <laughs> it's the casual banter that you expect every week. This is it's going in the refuge. show. Oh, we... <laughs> it's going in. The, I mean, unless somebody else wants to edit this. Uh, 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 uh. This is the political intrigue that happens behind the scenes. Because... Trying to make this a space opera metaphor. Yes, and I'm also trying to introduce our show. This is Last Refuge of the Incompetent, and I was. I read somewhere that I should explain what the show is. We're a sci-fi and speculative fiction show. Every week we have a different theme. My name is Gall. My name is Moses. My name is Ted. And this week's theme is space opera. That's right. It ain't over until the space lady sings. Space opera. It's a good Moses, Moses. It's a really good Moses moment. <laughs> Moses moments. <laughs> Get a jingle. Space opera. That's just, you know, grand galaxy spanning sci-fi theater of space war kind of stuff. You, you all read the Susan Sontag uh, essay about what is or isn't <laughs> oh. space opera, I assume. Uh, so. Gonna spend the next... 30, 40 minutes talking about that. We can get to hey, our works for this week. It's a, that was a good episode. If you guys are curious. Yeah. Listener, they're all good episodes. <laughs> they're all good episodes. That's true. Uh, I mean, I guess the term space opera comes from soap opera rather than directly from opera yeah. opera, but there is sometimes something opera. Yeah, it definitely it. gets applied to more serialized books too, right? According to Wikipedia, it was coined in 19, <laughs> 1941 by fan writer and author Wilson Tucker as a pejorative term in an article in issue 36 of Le Zombie science fiction fans. <laughs> Tucker defines space opera as the science fiction equivalent of the horse opera or the soap opera, a hacky, grinding, stinking, outworn spaceship yarn. But since then, the term has become an actual genre, and in the early 90s, a legitimate form of science fiction. And some of the best sci-fi that we know, best sci-fi, I think some of the most, like, identifiable as sci-fi is is space opera. Yeah, right? Asimov's Foundation series, does that count? According to Wikipedia, it According counts. to Wikipedia. <laughs> I think that's a borderline case. It has some, some elements. Starship Troopers, Dune, Ender's Game, the Culture series. Spaceballs? Sure, why not? Right, but this week we chose to focus on three works as the perfect segue from last week's camp episode, Jupiter Ascending, that movie. Two book series, one, the Vorkosigan Saga, which, Gal, you said you've read most of. They're one of your I've read every single one. Every single one. And there's and like then 17. The <laughs> Ancillary Justice trilogy. So I only read the first book of each of those. Everyone else got further than I did. So you win. <laughs> anyway, I love them. I, I'm like, I'm going to read them all. They're great. I didn't really go deep on music. I did find just like playlists of, of existing space opera movies. Oh, were, you, were you thinking of anything? I rarely do uh, yeah. think of anything. <laughs> Uh, but no, I haven't given this episode's music much thought. Jupiter Ascending didn't inspire much music for me. The Most of the movie felt like a Universal Studios ride, so is there any music <laughs> that can go with that? <laughs> yeah, so, listener, we're all in for a surprise together. <laughs> 
grand, big, bold, sweeping music. Cut to music. Uh, <laughs> deepest pool of deepest blue shall swim to you. Morning never waits for you, shall wait for you. You're listening to the... Podcast edit of Last Refuge of the Incompetent. What does that mean? Well, that means that all that lovely music that we curate for the radio that fits the theme perfectly and is eclectic and interesting and wonderful to listen to has to be edited out. And if you don't care, then keep listening. But if you do care, check us out on Mixcloud, the full unedited show can be found there don't know how to find that just go to lastrefugepod.com lastrefugepod.com all the information you need can be found accessed okay I found this as a good definition for space opera by, I guess, some dudes that wrote a book called Hartwell and Kramer. They define space opera as colorful, dramatic, large-scale science fiction adventure, competently and sometimes beautifully written, usually focused on a sympathetic... <laughs> Ted's already has issue with this. I, I will be calling out some prose uh, specifically <laughs> later in this show. Okay. <laughs> usually focused on a sympathetic, heroic, central character and plot action and usually set in the relatively distant future and in space or on other worlds characteristically optimistic in tone which i think is a is safe to say everything seems to like fall into place at some point it often deals with war piracy military virtues and very large scale action yeah, i'd say one thing that defines much if not all space opera is persistence of anachronisms whether it's feudal forms knights and noble houses or like ancient forms or or you know cowboys for some reason mm. or even if it's just like everything's like mid-century america mm-hmm. everywhere in space and we definitely yeah. see that in all of the works that we covered this week well you don't read a space opera per se for the societal critique although it doesn't mean that it's not always <laughs> there especially of the works that we're going to talk about what gets you into it is the is like the political intrigue and the stories of the people and what's going to happen to that person sort of you know it's a soap opera what happens to john next week <laughs> let's find out it's often the projection of like a past heroic age into the future <laughs> Moses wants to talk about Jupiter ascending first, and I do. I'm going to run on the three the theme of of political intrigue and bureaucratic nonsense. Moses, there was an outline, and <laughs> Jupiter <laughs> ascending a curse on a pox on your family. I'm going to go home and conspire. <laughs> 
with my family on how to take you down. <laughs> All right, Fair. tell me, tell us about Jupiter Ascending. Well, I know part of the reason we chose it is because it like was a famously bombed. But I stayed away. Like I didn't read all the contemporary reviews or even any recent reviews before going in. It's just like, okay, I heard this movie didn't do so hot. I'll watch it. And yeah, I get it. I get why it wasn't that great. I mean, it's a lavishly produced movie with a bunch of space stuff. And like I said, like all the action sequences are just insane. They pretty much demolish every building in Chicago. A lot of the larger ones. For fun. I had no idea that it existed. And it came out in 2015. And it's a Wachowski's film. And it's got like mm-hmm. Channing Tatum, Mila Kunis, Sean Bean, Eddie Redmayne. It's Sean all Bond. like big people. Sean Bond. Sean Bond. Uh, <laughs> What's that? Is it a joke I don't know? Sheen Bean? Uh, um, <laughs> it's not a good joke. But can't, I'm going to say really it every time. Um, oh, because it's it's spelled the same but Sean said Bond. differently? Yeah. Um, um, anyway, Mila Kunis is, uh, she, you know, she's her dad dies tragically while her mom is pregnant with her in Russia and then they emigrate to America and then she's, uh, we flash forward to she's a young adult and apparently she's been cleaning toilets her whole life with her mom and then suddenly we cut to a galactic space civilization who annexes or destroys, what do they do? Harvest. They harvest planets. We don't really understand what's going on yet and then we find out that Mila Kunis is secretly a genetic reincarnation of the space queen who lived for 10,000 years and then died by some treachery so she just goes to hang out with these space royals who are all conniving and trying to get her power that is rightfully hers. She's just a lowly earth girl. And Channing Tatum is a literal lone wolf who uh, (laughs) rescues her. (laughs) Like he was genetically spliced with wolf DNA to be an excellent hunter, but he doesn't have a pack anymore. This is is Sean Bond's exposition. Sean Bond. Um... (laughs) Yeah, he, so he's genetic. He's like a genetically engineered wolf person who has like anti-gravity rollerblades that allow him to rollerblade fly, oh, and he, he, he used to have prize. wings. Yeah, he if this have, doesn't like, sound wings. like the best movie ever, it's, I don't know <laughs> who you are. It really is like a consummate space opera. It's just like yeah, anything bunch the Wachowskis wanted the to top put in. stuff. Yeah, anything. Like, yeah, that is the best part of the movie is that, yeah, whatever they thought could be cool, they just threw in this movie. So, sure, throw it all in. Bees? Why not? <laughs> bees. But I think it follows perfectly from Flash Gordon last episode. Yeah. Because both of these have an imperial vortex of <laughs> space clouds. That to travel through. Yeah, the scene where one of the villains marries Mila Kunis, who is his reincarnated mother, Mom. Um, <laughs> for for fiendish reasons, in front of like a bun- like a thousand robots because you need them for ceremonial purposes. <laughs> Extremely on, Flash Gordon. Yeah, on a ship that looks like a Gothic cathedral. Is yeah, that was very Flash Gordon. I watched it today. Yeah, those parts were fun, but Look, man, the acting is not good. <laughs> Excuse me, Re- Eddie Redmayne is so good in this movie. This was <laughs> as I, evil. You know, it he, is so yeah. He, he chooses and... a villain voice, and yeah, he goes for it. Yeah, I, this was only the second time I'd watched it, but watching it again, I was thinking. This might be one of my favorite performances of all time. Yes! Just because... Eddie Redmayne's? <laughs> yeah. Yes! I mean, it's that there's nothing subtle about it. He's just doing, like, a weird, strained, quiet, galactic pervert voice, and then occasionally <laughs> yelling really loudly. But he, yeah, he just decides, like, yeah, I'm gonna do that for this movie, and then sticks to it. 
Look, um, if we're going to praise Brian, Brian Blessed for being <laughs> Brian Blessed, then we're, we have to give the same praise to Eddie Redmayne for, right. for making those choices. And I especially, I especially enjoy it coming from someone who later, you know, won a Best Actor Oscar for, I don't know, being Stephen Hawking or whatever. No, mm-hmm. this is the performance that deserves recognition. He's a good actor. I, I like him in those Harry Potter universe. I didn't, I didn't see him. I haven't seen any of those either. But yeah, the uh, Fantastic Beast. Beasts. He's Fantastic trying. Beasts. What are they? Where are they? Let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> Did they have no advertising for this movie? Because I, I genuinely... No, I remember trailers for it. I remember yeah. when it came out. And I just remember not needing to go see it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I knew about it enough to like go see it in a theater. I think like late in its run. This was basically a result of Warner Brothers asking the Wachowskis, like, hey, we need some brand new intellectual property. Want mm. to make it for us? And the Wachowskis <laughs> said yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah, go for it. And like, apparently, they wrote like a three hundred page screenplay that just involved, like, had like all of the rules of the universe and like lots of backstory that isn't actually in the film that they like, made all the actors read um, <laughs> to get their heads into it. Now that I like Channing Tatum, he was not peak Channing Tatum in this. If I have one complaint, it's more Channing Tatum <laughs> should have been in this movie. I really like Channing Tatum. I. Do not find him attractive at all, but he's like supposed to be a heartthrob. Yeah, he was fine. There was certainly no chemistry between him and Mila. Yeah, and then she says, "Oh, I, I, lo- I love dogs. I'm falling for you." <laughs> yeah, that was that was unexpected and thrown in last minute. <laughs> but also that, yeah, the whole thing where she finds out she's the space emperor, so she has to go get her paperwork filed, and then we spend 15 minutes in just like a kooky. Space bureaucracy <laughs> DMV. The movie is about like a royal family that rules vast swaths of the galaxy, basically through like brute force. But yeah. somehow they're also underneath or subject to this terrible bureaucracy. Collective bureaucracy. Like yeah. who? <laughs> what is the source of their jurisdiction? It still um, kind of apparently gets by by robots bribing other robots. <laughs> but that's. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what. Um, that funny. Something there's that dragons. Marks... Oh yeah, there's also dragon weird dragon people again. Oh, like... are you making a, a Marxist critique of this film? What's uh... <laughs> what is... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was gonna say one thing that often marks space opera is that like. Oh, I'm sorry. You're going to say that marks. Often marks. I mean, I am going to eventually, but that's an... That was the next thing about this film I was going to say. Like, a lot of space opera is marked by, like, the political economy of the universe doesn't make any sense. The political economy and the government structure. And you'll have, like, just absurd levels. You know, you'll have giant ships that use a sun's worth of energy and then weird shortages of something else. How do you have a Star Destroyer and moisture farming in the same universe? Um, It just doesn't (laughs) fit together in any way that would make sense to us. That's something you see in with Jupiter descending, with galactic aristocracy, and then a bureaucracy. This weird robot bureaucracy. The whole thing where they own and then harvest planets to make uh, like an anti-aging bath. It feels kind of like a, it's kind of a, like a redo of the whole Matrix idea of, oh, your whole reality is actually just um, yeah. uh, underneath yeah, somebody. You're, you're being harvested a... by a secret government. Yeah. And it's kind of like the 
the QAnon, like, adrenochrome conspiracy. Um, oh, where the, the yeah. secret elite is harvesting you. <laughs> Do you think they all got it from this movie? <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> I mean, so, I think it's just more evidence that the Wachowskis are part of the secret elite. They're Keep either dropping. part of the secret Boom. elite or like they're the only ones who know about it. Um, oh. But there is also like sort of a Marxist or vulgar Marxist dimension to it where one of the one of the siblings in the uh, Eddie Redmayne's family is saying how time is the only is the most important commodity, which, you know, the labor theory of value would basically tell you. All commodities are basically time anyway, mm. when you get mm. down to it. It's a <laughs> yeah. politically polyvalent film is what mm. I'm saying. And it's got some dope space roller skates. That apparently can do literally everything. They <laughs> like, work really against... does the sickest grinds. It's so cool. <laughs> you ever play that game it was from the Dreamcast, Jet Grind Radio? That was I... set in like a future Tokyo where you had like hover roller skates. It was a great game. Was... That's what his skates reminded me of. Was Jet did... Set Radio Future the sequel to that? Um, it was, yeah. yeah. I didn't know any of the words that you just said. <laughs> Mila Kunis, is, her character is named Jupiter because that was her dead dad's favorite planet. And also, I think Eddie Redmayne's secret base is it's in Jupiter. the eye of the storm. Right in the middle of the eye of Jupiter. Oh, yeah, the whole, as soon as we found that out, like I was waiting for them to do a slow fade from the eye of, of Jupiter, the planet, into her iris close up. And they didn't do it. Obviously, they <laughs> did it and then left it on the cutting room floor because they thought it wasn't cool enough this one's a little too cheesy one of the things that i will link to on the website are a series of articles that i found that are people discovering jupiter ascending after the fact and writing articles about how good it is it's good in the way flash gordon is good it is a fun campy romp yeah, there's, there's somehow it doesn't hit the same fun tone as Flash Gordon though. It takes itself a little more seriously than Flash. Yeah, some some of it is a bit too 2015, or like a lot of the action is just like too much on screen. There's too much happening. Yes. in a way, a lot of modern absolutely CGI filled action movies are. It's just it's too big. It's too much, so you don't care about it. With Flash Gordon, every single frame, as we talked about. Is just visually stunning, whereas with Jupiter Ascending, you get some of that with the like the cathed- space cathedrals and stuff. There are shots that hit that same mark, but then a lot mm-hmm. of the rest of it just looks like any other 2015 CGI-filled sci-fi movie. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not as pretty. It's 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 boring in that sense, or expected. But I think it is very. Very much worth watching. Absolutely. Just for Eddie Redmayne. It's so bad. <laughs> Apparently there's an article that's all about how after the fact he he got like a Razzie for it or something, which is, what is it, the worst? Oh yeah, they, they have a whole category for villain voices, right? So he got like a, a worst actor Razzie and he like talked about how terrible his performance is in it. <laughs> But this article is all about how he shouldn't have. He shouldn't have stepped. He should have just accepted how good it is yeah. for what it was. <laughs> should be yeah. proud of that performance. What else are you going to do in a movie like that? You can't take it seriously. Do you know what I mean? You can't like play it. It, it, the movie itself is ridiculous. The performance I would most compare that to would be um, Jeremy Irons in 2000's Dungeons and Dragons movie, which is, <laughs> which is awful. It's real bad. Uh, I would not recommend watching it in the way I would recommend watching Jupiter Ascending. He's the main villain and he just goes 110%. <laughs> (laughs) 
So I realize that the works, the writing that we chose for this series, because there's a lot of space opera, and there's a lot of space opera written by men, and somehow we've ended up, we chose two space operas written by, by moms. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> so the Verkozigan saga was written by Louis McMaster Bujold. The first book came out in 1986, and then the most recent one in May 2018. And she was in her 30s. She had written fan fiction before that, like Star Trek fan fiction and Sherlock Holmes fan fiction, which made me think of Star Trek with that Sherlock Holmes episode, Data. Oh, yeah. That's oh, yeah. <laughs> one of the best episodes. <laughs> Uh, and and then she kind of was just, you know she was just like writing and then she had a friend who was a published author and then she just kind of realized that once her friend wrote a book she was like oh she can do it I could do it um, if Lillian's getting published <laughs> then the hell am I doing so yeah I think she was divorced and in, in her thirties and she ties Heinlein with the most amount of Hugo Awards for best novel for Hugo Awards there are I don't know seventeen books slash short stories that fit into the Verkozigan, the Verkozaverse. I, a couple years ago, went all in and read all of them. Oh yeah, you should read them in internal chronological order and not Instead of in publishing order. And not in publishing order. Because the very first thing chronologically is, is like a novella. And so the next one is the, the big one and that introduces, uh, oh yeah, Cordelia. Cordelia and and the dad. See, I only read this first one. I didn't get further in, in this time period, but I liked it. I really enjoyed it. Well, it really moves. So what do we have? We have the there's a big galactic superpowers, Cordelia's from this planet, the beta colony, and then Errol is the dad. Errol? Oh right. Errol Vorkosaga. <laughs> yeah. He's like their main enemy, this who they're not at war with, but apparently are like prepping for a kind of quasi invasion. The way the Shards of Honor book is like several different encounters between them over the course of a, a while like it's cool first she's kind of quasi taken prisoner by him but because she's in a science research team and there's like half a mutiny on his ship so he gets injured and then they have to hike for a week together and so even though she's a prisoner they have to work together it's nice how she writes these relationships how they how that develops yeah it's all from like Cordelia's first person point of view most of it so we get all her internal dialogue and she's always got a good quip for something self-deprecating <laughs> Yeah, in Shards of Honor, you get sort of the two sides of space opera as a romance. Beta yeah. Colony is, you know, a very rational, scientific, Star Trek-y sort of place. And then whatever the Vorkosian planet Bar-a-yar. is. Yeah. <laughs> It's just <laughs> militaristic, honor-bound, um, hierarchical medieval Europe with ray guns. It is explained. I don't know if it's explained in Shards of Honor. That's the thing. The, the, the world is so big that a lot of the stuff is like explained eventually. But it's mm -hmm. explained that like humans kind of went and colonized all these planets. And then Bariar lost contact. There was an early nuclear like catastrophe. And so there was a lot of mutations. And then they lost a lot lot of their original knowledge so they had this period of isolation where they kind of like rebuilt and eventually became like feudal <laughs> like this like <laughs> like you know swords and, and things like that and then at some point people realized i think there was like the wormhole got shut off and then the wormhole was reopened and then people were able to travel to Bar Bariar and so then Bariar was able to like 
travel through space again. And so it's it's basically like spaceships and swords. The whole series the is mostly about this character named Miles Borkosigan. Yeah, you haven't even met Miles. Hasn't yet. been in any of the three <laughs> books <laughs> that I've read <laughs> yeah. because you recommended them. You haven't even met Miles. He's like the most important character. So Bariar has like this incredible fear of mutations because there was so much. It was an inhospitable planet and there was a lot of nuclear, I don't know, Fallout. action fallout going on it's <laughs> a very um euphemistic way to describe nuclear war just a lot of nuclear action i don't think there was nuclear war i think the some fissile hubbub yeah f- some, f- some hubbub anyway and so they have like a particular aversion to children that are born with any deformities and miles is i mean i don't want to give it away but he's not born with any mutations his his deformities are a result of some political intrigue. <laughs> um, anyway, so he's he's like um he's a little person. I think he's he's no taller than a nine year old and he has very um when he's young his bones are really brittle and they and they break really easily. It's kind of like part of part of the his story is about him navigating the society that he's in with having a disability, a physical disability. Mm. Oh, but you guys in Shards of Honor you meet Bathari. He's a big character. He's like one of my favorite characters, even though he's crazy. Cool. Yeah, yeah. He he he's he's been he's been like mentally tortured pretty much in this first book. But yeah, the book does a fun, great job of contrasting these two planets and we get to see Cordelia try to make this decision of well this is the part I kind of wanted to bring up right because she eventually decides to go live with Orcos again on Bariar and Marion because after the a war almost starts and it turns out to be a whole political ploy to not start a war anyway that was a cool (laughs) twist fine it's fine knowing that twist and then Cordelia goes back to her home planet on the beta colony which is just like the way I pictured it it was described as very boring like deliberately a very boring planet not even any big oceans just some really salt puddles they didn't even call them salt marshes they're just salt puddles I assume everyone's wearing khaki pants it's that kind of planet <laughs> and and it's it's funny like there's a president that is a dumb showman and everyone says they didn't vote for him but nobody cares because he's clearly just a guy a figurehead so she goes home and is trying to recover from like you know her more or less her war trauma she just wants to hang out and not think about anything the authorities there are just convinced she must be a spy for Bariar because she's the only one who thinks Rokosigan was a cool guy instead of a war criminal and it just happens really quickly where she just says well gotta go and like escapes goes back to Mary and then Bariar which is like a beautiful planet even though it's the, there's political intrigue and all these uh, hierarchical society. The planet itself has valleys and oceans and green. It's green. It's not just beige. See, nuclear action isn't that bad. <laughs> yeah. Hubbub. <laughs> but I, I found that to be kind of the most abrupt part of the book. Where she yeah. kind of gave up on her home planet that quickly. I think I had that same feeling when I first read it. But on the other hand, I guess plot-wise, she's got to go marry Vokos again so she can have Miles Vokos again so that the re- next ten books can be written. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to make quick decisions for the greater narrative. <laughs> So I read that those two books that are chronologically next to each other, and then I just read Ethan of Athos. Did you like Ethan of Athos? 
I thought it was a fun novella idea. There's good things about it. Um, <laughs> it is the book where I'm going to call out some of the pros. Oh, let's um, hear it. You know, when you're writing a space opera, you're like churning out plot. There's going to be, there's usually going to be something kind of pulpy about it, even if it isn't yeah. like published in a pulp format. Mm-hmm. So you got phrases like, he hunched down to the passenger side as the car knifed the night. It's uh, um, not or, great. <laughs> <laughs> What's she doing? Ethan whispered in Quinn's shell-like ear. Shell-like. Or my favorite, both Quinn's and the security man's stunner beams caught him in a neat crossfire, and he crashed as trees do. <laughs> it's not great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not, it's usually, it's mostly pretty, you know, competent workmanlike prose that's getting the plot along fine. It's not yeah, I really enjoyed in literature. Charge of Honor, like the, the rhythm of the storytelling. You know, we flash forward to the neck, you know, six months later and she's on this mission and you, you don't get any information on what it's like so you get to kind of find out as it goes along. But yeah, the prose nothing stood out to me. In, the, in our next book, the Ancillary Justice that had a lot more flourishes that I thought were pretty cool. But. People compare Anne Leckie, who's the author of Ancillary Justice... I don't know if I would... I mean, some people have compared her to Ursula K. Le Guin, but I don't know if I would have. I think it's good. I think she's competent, but I don't see her as literary as Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, yeah, I can see how that comparison could come up with the, the gender language stuff in that book. Ethan Avathos, I recommended as like a standalone novella because I just like the idea behind it. It's like a planet of just men. That It was like a cult of men that left. They didn't want women in their <laughs> lives. I guess from what I remember, they were like priests or some sort of uh, they're, I mean, they, they're religious. It seems to be basically Christianity. They pray yeah. to God the Father. They're like, you know, traditional patriarchs, except there's no women. So um, they have sex with men now. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. Some of them. A lot of them. Some of them. And one of the big plot points for the entire Vercozaverse, which you haven't gotten to yet. Oh, wait. Unless, Ted, you read the second one after. So Cordelia was pregnant in the second one that you read, right? So the uterine, what are they called? The uterine... Replicators, I think. Replicators. Like, they they play a big part in a lot of this world where you can just grow a baby in a a thing. Yeah, I found it interesting. I found it interesting that in both... The Rokosian books and the Ancillary Justice books, there are definitely sort of utopian elements that have been found in a lot of the earlier stuff we've discussed on the show. They generally take sort of a backseat to dramatic action. It's a space opera, (laughs) all right? It's a world being built. Uh, One of the things that Louis McBasser Bujold does well which maybe not so much in the books that you guys read there's one called falling free that is like really known for this which is another novella so her dad was like a famous engineer and her her brother is an engineer too and so she does a lot of 21st 20th century technology sort of stuff so she she goes like deep into in some books into like the space tech of stuff mm-hmm. and also the failure of space tech she gets she has like an engineer's perspective on a lot of stuff i did like in ethan abathos most of it takes place on a space station and it does go into how balancing the ecology of the space station is hard and because it's so difficult there's an ecology police who have sort of unlimited <laughs> jurisdiction to control outbreaks of um, infectious diseases or invasive yeah. species there's a, a a theme in her books all about how technology become 
can become op- obsolete. So in that one called Falling Free, it's a novella that takes place like 200 years before even any Miles, the main character, which you haven't even met yet, <laughs> is born. And it's like a world where a bunch of corporate entities invest in creating people that have four hands so that they can live in a place without gravity. And so they don't need feet. And that way they can, they don't have to take like, they can live in in no gravity, which means they don't have to take the same breaks that pe- that he- normal humans have to take. And it's just like an investment for these people. And it's all about how at some point these like breed of people, which they don't even consider people, they're, tra- they're treated as like chattel, basically. At some point, this technology, this anti, this gravity technology is created. So these people become obsolete because mm. now you can just create a spaceship that has gravity and so it's all about how they're like well should we just get kill them all or should we make them all sterile and then it's it's there's this an engineer that is on the ship that is like kind of helps create a a revolt against them and it's about how they escape and that one i think is the most hard sci-fi because she goes into like a lot of detail on what that technology would be like what those people would be like engineered space people also make a brief appearance in um the ancillary justice series mm-hmm. oh like, yeah very briefly mm-hmm. but yeah speaking of like the existence of sort of anachronisms the other word that i should be using to describe <laughs> what i mean um alongside future technology ethos because they're all men they use these uterine replicators to grow all the children but they're like an agricultural society otherwise but they are in like engaged in intergalactic commerce. One thing I enjoyed is that they spend an enormous amount of money to import a bunch of scientific journals. Oh yeah. Um, there's <laughs> yeah, there's interstellar travel, but you're still going to spend a lot to um buy the the most Hard recent copies. journals, paper copies of the newest journals and get them imported to your planet. There's no sci-hub in this future. <laughs> yeah. That made me think of the dispossessed Right? Oh, yeah, Is that scientific the one? collaboration across yeah, yeah, yeah. planets. Planets. I... Spending knowledge through the solar systems. <laughs> Did I say that? <laughs> Does that sound like that? That's no. what you always sound like. I don't me. know. Yeah, it's, it is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you know this, Moses, but that's what you always sound like. I gotta listen, start listening to this show, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons people really like the Verkozigan saga is because, one, she's a female writer who writes a good swath of different types of characters. So there's complex characters, there's characters with visible physical disabilities there's there's male characters are like the main as the main character main protagonist and there's also cordelia is famous for being not a young woman like you, she already comes into the story older i think maybe she's in her 30s or something and so mm-hmm. that's already, already talked about like a failed marriage yeah exactly so there's already this like oh this isn't she's i, I wouldn't is she like the mary sue i feel like she's like <laughs> I feel like in a little bit she's like Louis McMaster Brujold's like what's the word alter ego alter ego in some sense but she's because Cordelia doesn't feel that flawed but she is kind of flawed but then the uh, I just mentioned this before we started recording ourselves the last book that she wrote in 2018 called Gentleman Jolie and the Red Queen or something is all about Cordelia so there's like Cordelia and 
Errol in the first two books, and then there's All Miles. And then the last book is A Return to Cordelia. So she's this older woman, and it's all about, like, this older woman exploring her sexuality. But then there's also, like, political intrigue and all that stuff. And um, I think that's why people like this book, because it's, you know, it's got stuff for other for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Moses mentioned that Cordelia's decision to leave the Beta Colony again and go back to Bayar as being, like, very quick. And in Ethan of Athos, like, he's never met a woman. He's raised, he's raised in the society that created an all-male society because they thought women were evil or whatever. So he's terrified of the idea of a woman. And then the other main character, basically, is a woman who he's working with. And he basically gets, it, gets over it. Very quickly. Later on, it's occasionally referenced that he's still feeling these feelings of aversion and suspicion, but you never get his actual, really, like, the internal conscious process, the journey he's mm. going through from being terrified of women to being like, maybe they're not so different. Kind of just applied or assumed. Yeah. As a woman who works with more than one man that's terrified of women in a male-dominated field, it doesn't happen that quickly. <laughs> <laughs> it's more the woman that has to adjust to the man and less the other way around. Yeah, that's uh, the other thing about Cordelia's decision to go flee to Bar-Yar is that, like, except for... Or Albert Kozigan, everyone else is just a jerk in a very misogynistic society. That, like, they all scoff at her because she's like, what? They give a woman a position of power? A woman captain? <laughs> Ugh, gross. She goes for love, Moses. <laughs> she goes for love. And, you know, it's, I mean, yeah, she says that and it's like, oh, it's not going to be easy, but at least this one guy is cool. <laughs> and he's interested I mean, in making this society better, so maybe I can help with that. It's a soap opera. Yeah. I mean, it it exists for a reason. And it is good to see her pull off some crazy plan that relies on being underestimated because she's a woman. And then, like, ha, take that, you jerk misogynist. Just stunned you. Yeah, there's a lot of, in those two books, there's a lot of, especially the second one, I guess, there's a lot of, sort of court politics and court intrigue. Yeah. I mean, I haven't actually read, not Jane Fonda. <laughs> Jane, Jane Austen? Yes. Oh. Jane Austen. <laughs> Jane it, Fonda. Yeah. <laughs> Famous English Reader. author, Jane. But yeah, there is that feeling of, yeah, it's kind of a, a woman's novel in the sense that it's about social positioning. I uh, mean, this is barely related. But have you, either of you watched that new show about chess, The Queen's Gambit? Yeah, I just finished it. I enjoyed it. And, but part of the thing that was just most fun to watch is it's a fictional story, but it still feels great to just as see her rise to the ranks of the, these chess champions that, and have a bunch of cocky jerks. Say, I could beat this woman, and then she just demolishes them. And just that's the the best part of the show is just watching their faces fall (laughs) as they as they realize that they're getting completely destroyed. I will say that you know that this book that the Queen's Gambit was written by a man because she's not just Mm -hmm. a genius chess champion; she's a beautiful genius (laughs) chess champion. She's the most beautiful. (laughs) My one complaint about the queen's gambit which now we're talking about the queen's gambit (laughs) is it's really it's really well done but because it's only what like eight episodes the last episode is just so beautifully resolved you're like it wouldn't happen that quickly she didn't just somehow (laughs) kick her drug habit like it doesn't happen that quickly yeah yeah. quick question how does this relate to farscape (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, okay. Come on. Almost in there. Wormholes. Uh, it's it. No, it's on the hollow deck. It's it's a it's a it's a next generation. Um, layers within layers. <laughs> okay, so the last thing I want to say about Lewis McMaster Bujold before we move on to our next series is that she started out writing fan fiction, and because of that, she's like kind of really pro fan fiction. Which I don't really, I don't, I don't like fan fiction, but I like people. I no, I like people who like fan fiction. Like I'm really, I like love people who love stuff that I like think it's yeah. You're a fan fiction ally. (laughs) Yeah, I'm an ally, right? Like you don't like the elitism that looks down on fan fiction. Yes, I just listen. Okay, I'm about to complain. I so I really like this podcast, The West Wing Thing, and Brendan, my husband, really likes Chapo Trap House. And there's this woman on Chapo Trap House who's normally like incredibly smart and lucid and knows a lot of stuff but she was on the west wing thing and she just completely took a dump on like people that were into adventure time adults that really like adventure time she was just like i don't get it it's it's for children they're babies why do they like it? blah 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 and i was like what's wrong with her let people have the society life is terrible let people like adventure time like too much you know what i mean it's totally okay so what i'm saying is I enjoy people that like stuff too much. I think it's like a beautiful, unless it gets gross, I think it's a beautiful thing. And Louis McMaster Bujold is like on the same page. I mean, she's a fan fiction person herself, but she's like, yeah, she, I like it when people write fan fiction about my characters. I think that's nice. Yeah, that's I all. read that same quote and also thought that was nice. But then I also saw that like, well, at this point, I can't read too much for legal reasons because if I accidentally use like a story yeah or an idea from a fan fiction story it'll be a mess but i don't and, and i don't never intend to but so i just need, legally i can't read too much fan fiction about my own work but i wholeheartedly <laughs> encourage it what else are people gonna do everything is terrible let people really like ponies <laughs> All right, let's move on to technically moses you called it the ancillary ancill Ant, oh my god. Ancillary. Ancillary Justice series, but it's called the Imperial Ratch Trilogy. Ratch. R-A-D-C-H. That's the name of this, uh, again, hyper-militaristic society that rules most of the galaxy in this series. There's only three books in this one, and very quick and easy to read. I think I read them yeah, yeah. over the course of the past two weeks. It's another mom writing sci-fi. So Anne Leckie gave birth to her children in the 2000s and she was a bored stay-at-home mom and she started to like sketch the first draft of ancillary justice and then for for NaNoWriMo so for national novel novel writing month which if anybody doesn't know what that is in the month of November you're supposed to write a um 500 page no that's too big you know you set whatever bar you feel (laughs) comfortable striving for yeah yeah and she wrote a novel and it was published over the course of six years she she kind of finished it and then it was published in 2012 i think i I saw that she she attended a clarion writers workshop where she studied under octavia butler the acknowledgements and all the books always thank the st louis public county library (laughs) you just went to the library and did whatever research you needed i really enjoyed these books they were really fun and quick and easy to read. And they had some, yeah. you know, interesting concepts to consider. In space operas, you get empires over and over again, usually as the villains. But this was the rare space opera that was actually like 
about imperialism and didn't just yeah. feature an empire as a generic um, villainous construct. It's able to be about imperialism because the protagonists are part of the empire and are enacting imperialism, at least at the beginning. It ended up in some way, like, I'd say it's a space opera, but it also sort of felt like an anti-space opera in some ways, both because it critiques imperialism and also because it kind of keeps gesturing to this big epic world and then not letting you <laughs> see it. Um, <laughs> there's obviously a galaxy, you know, with lots of colonization of planets by humans, some of which is in this Raj empire, some of which isn't. And there's the original planet, which is encased in, which is maybe Earth or maybe not, which is encased in a Dyson sphere and which might not even know about the rest of the empire because they're so xenophobic and like insular. Um, so you never get to see that. Other species, um, non-human species that get referenced, but you never see them. There's other interstellar political constructs that get referenced, but you don't really get to be in them. Instead, like two whole books get spent on one space station and a planet. Yeah, but the first book, if you take the whole series, they go, they're on this like weird, I don't know, cold planet. What's that one where Luke Skywalker Hoth. goes inside of a oh, Hoth. Hoth? Yeah, they're on like a Hoth-like planet and then they're like on a spaceship and then they're in the one of the Imperial castles, basically. I mean, they it, it does jump around a little bit they go through wormholes no i'm not i'm not like <laughs> criticizing it saying like oh, i didn't give a give us any of that good space opera stuff <laughs> say it makes it more interesting it tries to subvert your expectations the main oh, yeah. character is a spaceship that yeah. is a spaceship ai that has been part of the you know imperial colonizing force annexing planets for 2000 years so this spaceship has been around for 2,000 years. And then through a series of, uh, you know, political maneuvers by the the leader of the Ratch is, uh, has cloned themselves many times. So there's Anander many bodies Mianai. in Anandar Mianai. I hated all and... of the names in this book. <laughs> so the whole thing in this book is that this leader who has cloned themselves so many times to rule over the, over the planet develops an internal schism. And so that really messes with people because everyone worships this leader as a god. Infallible. But the main character is a, is a ship and the ships have ancillaries, which are is taken over human bodies. So in prisoners of war, who instead of just being murdered, have just been kind of sc scooped out and uh, <laughs> uh, super intelligent spaceships can use them as their bodies to walk around. Uh, and eventually the ship gets destroyed and all the ancillaries die except for this one. And so this one badass is walking around with 2,000 years of war knowledge bent on revenge. And the, the this imperial civilization, the Ratch, it's a point in the book that this society is not really gendered and the language doesn't inflect gender at all. And so that's the native language of the spaceship. And so when the spaceship is out in the outer reaches trying to interact with all these other civilizations, they're constantly misgendering people because their yeah. language doesn't have gender. That meant that the whole book, since it's from the spaceship's point of view, the default pronoun is she. And that was a, I enjoyed that choice for once. <laughs> Balance things out instead of the default being he. It's mom's writing sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and a lot of the main characters, you never learn what how we would gender them. A few of the characters, when they're like interacting with people who speak another language, one of the characters will refer to them as he yeah. instead of the default Rajai her. So you're I like, oh, they're, they're probably what we would think of as a man. But other characters, but if then they as never... Soon as, we go back, as soon as we go back to the internal monologue of the main character, it's she again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think in the second book, you find out that 
they're not asexual. They have yeah, they're definitely, penises yeah. and, and yeah. vaginas. They just don't they have, care about gender exactly, in the way we yeah. do. Yeah. And because yeah, of that, so anyone can you know, perform any of the genders in any way they want. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the language is totally neutral. The premise of this galactic emperor who kind of embodies sovereignty by being the sovereign who's literally everywhere by having thousands of bodies and then has like an internal split was both a very like original premise that I think added mm-hmm. a lot to the book and it's kind of an interesting commentary on the whole concept of sovereignty. The sentient ship thing is kind of the hard sci-fi aspect of the most hard sci-fi aspect of the books. In one of our previous episodes, I was complaining about how um, <laughs> artificial intelligence books, you know, right? Sci-fi rarely gives us any sense of how it would be different or give us a sense of why it would be so human. Right. And this one has pretty, like, simple, neat explanation of why it is so human-like. Like, they have emotions because it's a problem-solving shortcut. Like, if they were just pure reasoning, they would just have infinite decision trees and never be able to actually decide on anything. So emotions basically allow you to actually do something. And the other reason is, which I think Anander Mainai says, these ships are way more powerful than we will ever be, and they're too smart. So if they didn't have feelings, there'd be no reason to think that they would, um, you know, follow us. So we just make them love us. (laughs) Yeah, they do. That's a, a big part of, especially in the, I mean, throughout the entire series, but especially in the third book is about how a ship loves its captain or has favorites or has, has love for its mm-hmm. captain. Yeah. The third yeah. book has one of the most original love triangles, I guess. Yeah. In it's sci-fi. Fascinating. Oh. You know, one thing, sometimes you like, read a book that is like a standalone book or like you were saying Moses it was so uh, Cordelia falling in love with Errol Verkozigan was like so quick because it was like a plot moving along but in the Raj trilogy the love story is really long it goes through the course of those three books like ships don't have sex but they feel love you know mm-hmm. and they and they want love and they want affection and it's really actually a, a, I don't know it was a fun book yeah it, was complicated. It, does, it does a really good job of making it like yes this is like a love story but it's not like a human love story plastered over non-human characters it's its own thing if i had to give a one sentence synopsis of uh, the whole trilogy it would be the master's tools decide to uh, take apart the master's house (laughs) (laughs) before the ship gets destroyed we we you know we get kind of two timelines in the story where we go back to what happened to the ship to make it end up in just one body and then the one body search for revenge but we get from the ship's point of view and the point of view of it's you know 20 human bodies bodies and we get to that gets to shape the narrative we get to see this scene from all 20 pairs of eyes that the ship has on the ground and we're like cutting between them so it's kind of like a cool action pace but also it's wow there's one mind just processing all that at once and so you kind of get a feel for how cool that is and how much that mind lost when it was then confined to one body i read somewhere that she she like sold the rights to be made into a tv series maybe or a film and i just i don't see anybody now actually like so they're all they're they're all dark-skinned characters like every single one (laughs) i don't think there's light-skinned characters in this book and they're messing around with gender you know i think they're they're androgynous they're you know they get to choose how they want to represent themselves like you know men can 
look female and women can look male and all that good stuff. And I don't, I don't, I don't. Apparently, and like he says, she talked to 20th Century Fox and they said that they would stay true to the story, <laughs> but it seems hard. Maybe the Wachowskis could do it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. The other aspect of it being about imperialism rather than just having something called an empire in it is that not only are they, you know, sort of hierarchical and they have these complicated client relationships and aristocratic families they're yeah they're status obsessed but they're also obsessed with like tea yeah <laughs> and yeah. having yeah. nice tea oh, right. sets so, yeah <laughs> they're called the the raj and then you know the if you're from the raj you're rad chai but if you're reading that it looks like rad chai <laughs> <laughs> rad chai bro <laughs> The polytheistic religion they have and the official religious role that the ruler has and the strict distinction between citizenship and non-citizenship, mm-hmm. it feels sort of like it's a reference to the Roman Empire, but in the obsession with social propriety and having fancy tea feels very much like it's the British Empire. Um, <laughs> so those two smushed together. There's also an alien species called the Grr. No, no, no. It's just six. It's <laughs> just the Grr. I don't know if you're supposed to trill it. Oh yeah, sorry. No. Oh, the other one has starts with the G. I think it's like the Gek or something. And then there's the Presger. The yeah. And then oh, the Presger. Ooh, Moses. Sorry, I haven't gone to the so, Gek yet. You gotta get to the the Gek bit. They don't show up, but you gotta get to <laughs> the Presger. Oh, yeah. The Presger so, translator is amazing. Uh, similarly to how I was complaining about how. AI, artificial intelligence never seems that different. I was complaining about how aliens never seem that different from us. This gets around that in a very interesting way. There's this other species that just is much more powerful than humans, as far as we can tell. They used to just take apart spaceships and people. They almost seem like they're a parody of the kind of Baconian view of science taking apart nature. But eventually, they have some distinction between significant species, non-significant species, so you can just do whatever you want Mm -hmm. with you know like cows or pigs Mm -hmm. and then they have significant species who are sentient enough to um not kill or harm so eventually they sign a treaty with humans based on them so like a usual space opera you would meet them but in this case you only ever hear about them and they're so alien that to even communicate with them they had to sort of reverse engineer and build their own humans to act as translators Mm -hmm. They're cool. And they're just huge weirdos. <laughs> they're so <laughs> cool. They're the best characters. They're so good. All right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, really that also them. felt like a very original aspect of the series. That's yeah, a lot of fun because they're just weirdos. It's a really fun book or series of books. Well, the other fun spaceship mannerism that this person has, the main character, is that when we're, we're hearing stuff from her point of view, is that uh, whenever there's some weird pause for some whatever reason, she says, well, she paused for 13 seconds and then said. Yeah. <laughs> so you just know this, because even though the spaceships have emotions, they're still not calibrated that much to human emotions. And so there's still all these funny moments, like data from Star Trek, where we're hearing <laughs> it's like, well, okay, after three seconds, they said. Not pause, I deduced. Data is so good. He's so good. Thank you, Data. <laughs> and now, for strictly personal reasons, I must leave. Um, so there's these utopian aspects, or aspects that would we think of utopian as in other works, like uterine replicators or having a genderless society. 
And it's a society where like everyone is, it's a society where everyone's guaranteed basic food and shelter and clothing and a work assignment, but is still extremely status obsessed. But there's also this aspect that would probably be dystopian in most other fiction, which is that everybody is, has their brains hooked up to these sentient ship and station AIs that can like see, see and hear what they're seeing and hearing and feeling read their thoughts pretty much all the time in a lot of other works that would be i mean that would be the main theme how this is Mm -hmm. like either horrifying and terrible or like changes everything but in these books it's basically one real convenient (laughs) and two (laughs) the basis of these weird post-human love triangles two it does also produce a whole lot of prose where you hear that someone is not showing emotions on their face but is feeling them inside. If I had a main complaint with the prose, it's hearing that over and over and over again. <laughs> I guess it's like, what's the different ways that you can, the different perspectives you can write a story? Like, it's like having an omniscient, sort of omniscient narrator, putting a blindfold over the omniscient narrator. Oh, yeah. And there, you know? Yeah, narratively, it's very convenient. Um, yeah. And when you think about it, it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody has privacy in none of the characters, really. No, and they, I think she mentions that, or Breck mentions that at some point, and they're explaining something to someone who's new to the Ratchai, and they're like, oh, no, 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 nobody has privacy on a ship. <laughs> yeah, the ship we, is always yeah. aware. <laughs> we did away with privacy eons ago. She has, like, a moment where she was, like, where she gets, she gets the ability to start seeing things that she wasn't able to see anymore. And she starts, and she realizes, oh, I probably shouldn't do this. This is an invasion of privacy. <laughs> For too long. And One last time, if you just listened to this entire show and thought to yourself, hang on a second, weren't they supposed to play music? Well, now, you're listening to the podcast edit of this show. If you want to listen to the music, go to lastrefugepod.com. You can find a playlist of all the music that we play and links to the mix cloud and all that good stuff. And um, enjoy. Next week, we'll be doing a compilation show. So please listen or don't. <laughs> Our compilation episodes get real sad if you don't listen to them. We don't care, but the one without us, the ones without us. Compilation show here doesn't mean a set of clips from previous episodes. No, 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 it's no. Mostly no. music. It's music, and fi- there's a lot of movie stuff that you yeah. can put in there. This it's week. a clip show, but it's not a yeah. clip show. It's not an e- right. eclipse show. Oh, I hate myself. <laughs> All right, we have a, a website, lastrefugepod.com. That's um, if you check it out now. I did some updating today, and there's some cool stuff on there. I put Fresh. on a lot of links, a lot of cool stuff. Check it out. Somehow you got a slideshow on there. I did. Lastrefugepod.com. Yeah. Uh, What's our send email? Send us an email at thelastrefugeoftheincompetent at gmail.com. Leave us a voicemail. 805-253-3091. Yeah, say in. Keep reading some books. Sweet dreams, incompetiers. Science fiction.